Hello, Heron. Hello, Tom. So it's, I guess, been probably 10 days since we last chatted, and I've gone back through your, your back catalogue, and I'm really enjoying your podcast. Oh, thank you. But I wanted to put out a topic to you with regards to online identity, because I think it fits in with some of the uh, meta-concepts that you've, you've discussed with a number of your previous guests. And it's something which, obviously, you have a podcast, I have a podcast, uh, I, I think about quite a bit. What's I mean, there seems to be a lot of narrative, particularly in, in popular tech journalism currently with regards to Facebook and what it means for, for average everyday people in terms of their identity being online. Yeah. But what's, what's your view with regards to this? Well, I've just recently begun. I, I've been on Facebook, for instance, for probably two years, but I've only in the last couple of weeks actually started using it more effectively. I mean, I put up a profile... And and that was basically it. I'd go there once every three months and look at it, <laughs> you know. And I had ten friends or something. Uh, but recently, I you know I've been saving URLs to interesting YouTube videos that I've discovered over the last few years. And I used to, uh, you know, most of my friends are in uh, Skype. Skype is the center of my communications world. And, uh, and I've got a few friends that I would send these links to every once in a while. And I wanted to send them to, mo to more people, but it was sort of a pain in the butt to send them individually. And then I realized I can just post this stuff to Facebook. Anytime I find an interesting video, I just post the URL uh, on my Facebook page, and whoever's are my friends will see that. So I'm just beginning to explore Facebook. Yeah, really. I don't Twitter. Certainly, certainly. It's it's an interesting concept. I guess from my own life, I have a, a very keen sense of who I am online as, as a person and in terms of the kind of information that I put out online. And also, I guess I've been on Facebook for probably, it feels like four years now, maybe three and a half, uh -huh. four years and I started it because I was um, doing editorial duties for another podcast, and the guys who were doing it were of college age, and they were on Facebook, and they said, well, you've got to get on Facebook, and I got on Facebook. So I was probably the earliest of my friends of my age group, I'm in my early 30s, that got yeah. on Facebook, and I've really ridden away since then. And for me, personally, because I've lived... Um, in the UK, I've lived uh, in different parts of the US, different parts of Australia, uh, a bit of time in Southeast Asia, and also, irrespective of these places that I've been in location, I've also, uh, you know, I have I have people that I've only communicate with online who I've never met. Yeah. In fact, um, as I talked with you last time, going to the Bay Area this time to talk at Intel and Stanford, this will be the first time that I will meet a number of people face-to-face oh, yeah. -face that I've been working with for the past 10 years or more. Yeah. I mean, it's quite actually quite surreal in terms of the relationships that one develops. Well, I don't see it as surreal at all. In fact, most of the, the people that I consider to be friends, I don't even know what they look like. Mm. I've been a hermit most of my life. Uh, when I was 21, I had this sort of weird awakening experience, and basically... A couple of years after that, I decided that the majority of people in my life were a waste, just wasting my time. Mm -hmm. And I just decided that uh, I, I would only allow people in my life who actually contributed to it. So, therefore, mm -hmm. uh, I had no friends for several <laughs> years. I, I guess I had a similar awakening at a similar time in my life. I mean, certainly that was my experience living in Australia. And even prior to leaving Australia, even in my teens, I actively kind of culled friendship groups when I found my energies or my emotions were being overly taxed by them. So yeah. I think there's, there's a kind of shared element there. But the thing that strikes me about Facebook as a technology is the kind of criticism that is coming out currently versus, for example, what exists already in commerce here. Yeah. I mean, in terms of financial transactions, these kind of things are in no way private. Uh, they're they're yeah. very well Privacy shared. is just not an issue for me. I just don't really give a shit. I mean, there are a few things, personal things, you know, I have somewhat, I think we talked about my OCD, I don't mm -hmm. know if we did or not, but, 
you know, I mean, luckily it primarily expresses itself as, as my obsession with linguistics. Mm-hmm. But it also shows up in other more subtle psychological ways. But nobody knows about that but me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And, but so, aside from things like that, I, I, I couldn't care less what people know about me. So uh, it's an interesting, I, as, as we're talking, actually, I've pulled out a, a picture of John Draper or Captain Crunch. Do you do you know of him? Um, I've, I've heard he was of Captain first, Crunch. He was the first phone hacker in the early 70s. Okay, right. And yeah, all that's he, right. Okay, yeah. So he was a fellow, I was the first person to put any photographs of him online. He existed in a kind of mystical persona prior to him meeting me in, I think, 1995 in Australia. He was traveling through Australia. And I was, in fact, uh, when I met him, I couldn't believe that it was actually him, the kind of disconnect between the way that he existed in this kind of mythical online, the fact that <laughs> yeah, bullet and, and the, the, the physics, exactly, exactly, the, the <laughs> kind of toothless guy in front of me. So there are these extremes, and I think it's interesting because, I mean, certainly I... I have a sense of myself online, which is very distinct to me as a person. And I think particularly listening to your shows, you get elements of who you are online, but I don't have a full sense of you in a kind of personal mm, perspective. Yeah. And I'm not sure whether uh, whether this is intentional in terms of what, you, what you're describing in terms of your, your, hermitless, your hermit existence yeah. and this kind of philosophy that you have. But uh, is it, this appears to be something that is quite subconscious to you. What is subconscious to me? Well, the, 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 the fact that basically, I mean, for example, in terms of things like biographical information, photographs, mm-hmm. any kind of details of, uh, I don't know, I mean, in terms oh, of... Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't find any of that very interesting mm-hmm. online. I mean, I'm interested in the ideas, and I, I used to have uh, used picture, you know, my own portrait uh, mm-hmm. for my, uh, you know, Facebook and other things, you know. But I realized that, you know, I really, I find that, you know, a distraction. For instance, in our talking right now, I don't want to see you. I don't mm-hmm. want video. I just want mm-hmm. your ideas. Mm-hmm. And I, and I see, you know, speakers who uh, have their little picture at the bottom of the brochure. <laughs> you know, their smiling I, I, faces. I, I concur with you, yes. And, you know, and I, the whole thing just strikes me as irrelevant. You know, I want people to focus on the ideas, not me. Mm-hmm. So, so you're already – so you, you are, in fact, describing perfectly this idea – that we exist on uh, in, I guess, the internet domain in terms of our ideas, and ah, this is yeah. certainly something that I embrace as well. Let versus... me say that I, for me, I I talk about two worlds. If you've heard any of these things, maybe I mentioned them: Squish and The Matrix. Mm-hmm. And they're two people talk about the real world, and I just think that's such a bullshit concept. Mm-hmm. It's no more real than where we are now in the Matrix, mm-hmm. and they're just different realities. And in Squish, that's a whole different reality. When I'm sitting in Starbucks and I'm talking to a good-looking girl sitting next to me, or some mm-hmm. guy, or whoever I'm talking to, that's that's so that's just a completely different domain than what we're doing here now. And I don't see much in common between the two, actually. Mm. <laughs> and I see. I think this domain is far superior uh, for ideas. I, I, when I'm I would, sitting I would agree. A, across the table, if you and I were sitting in Starbucks, mm-hmm. I would have to. I mean, you, you put two alpha males together, mm-hmm. and you got to deal with all the monkey business. Mm-hmm. It's all there, and that's why I don't want to look at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't need that. What I need is your voice and your ideas. I understand that. I mean, I think we're, we're like minds here. So you are, in fact, deconstructing me in describing the circumstance. I guess my concern is that I exist as a real entity as well. And I don't know. I don't not know. Not real. No, not. I, I object to that concept of real. You know, well, they're just different. There are different realities here. Certainly, certainly, without One question. One isn't more real, I don't think. I just think that's, uh, I, I don't accept that. I mean, I, I guess I can argue with you if you choose to use that, but yes. no, never look, mind. I, look, I mean, <laughs> we, are, we are like minds in this fashion here, Aaron. I, I guess my concern has always been that the values of ideas that are put through the kind of domain that we are discussing and currently yeah. is still very much, and I, we use this, term when we last spoke a kind of monastic order 
And the real question is getting these, well, for, for example, I mean, a little bit of background in my own experience. To, to me, particularly for the past maybe five years, possibly even 10 years, the, I guess, doppelganger is too, in, in some regard, a kind of distant nemesis figure that I've had uh, has been Richard Dawkins. And my experience with him and dealing with him and his people and just the complete antithesis of this vision that a lot of people have of Dawkins has made me think in terms of the fact that you can have a what we have in terms of an intellectual uh, community that is very much uh, based on ideas and voice and interaction. But, and Dawkins is one of many, I mean, basically, the, let's call them the TED speakers, the people that talk at the <laughs> TED conferences, yeah. okay? Yeah. These okay. people... These people with their books and their faces and these kind of things. This is the domain of ideas for the populace still. So how do we turn it inside out? How do we make the ideas of, of the faceless intellectuals that exist on the Internet be more powerful than the people that get, ah. uh, you know, book deals? Well, this is how we do it. We're well, doing I, it right now, I, you and I would, me. Certainly, <laughs> certainly. But I think the, the issue is whether we need to enter the domain in any way or whether basically through uh, eclectic and eccentric force we can just mandate these ideas going into the future. And God, certainly, I'm so glad, Tom, I am so glad you called me tonight. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt that there was need for a little bit of oh, deconstruction. I'm so glad you felt that. You know, really, this is, I, you know, I really enjoy a good conversation with someone who is as weird as I am. <laughs> well, maybe even weirder. Who knows? Well, we'll see. <laughs> I, I put my toe in both domains, so I don't know. I don't know. But um, so I guess listening to your show and particularly, I mean, you get a lot of people from, uh, from the Southern Hemisphere, from both parts of the world that I've called home previously calling into your show. And I think the, the, the um, woman who you spoke to recently from Australia that talked about the Australian election and oh, Rudd. Yeah, and these kind of oh, God, Do you I know Australia that. has compulsory voting? Uh, no. Well, you know, I think I do know that. I think I heard that. Here's yeah. the fascinating thing. Yeah, that compulsory is a fascinating voting, idea. Compulsory that could lead voting. to a whole different kind of rebellion. No, no. Well, <laughs> it, there, are, there are half a dozen reasons that I left Australia, and compulsory voting is one of them, because it creates a false politicization. The people in that I found in Australia would justify voting for people who were subpar criminals in comparison to the other subpar criminal that they had to vote for. Yeah. So what you find is this idolization of these people who really are, you know, bureaucrats by fundamental nature, if not slightly corrupt. You think, you think uh, that's any different here? Well, th the thing that I like about the U.S. is that you don't have to vote. No, that's true. You know, I am going to vote for the first time in like 20 years this November. I've voted three times in my yeah. life. Once yeah. when I was 21 for the president, and of course I lost. <laughs> and then uh, 20 years later, uh, they voted to ban smoking in public <laughs> places. So I uh, registered to vote and voted for that and won. And I was even, and I figured I'd never vote again. <laughs> <laughs> but in California this uh, November, they're voting to legalize marijuana. So I grew I, up in a place where they legalized marijuana. When I was 13, <laughs> they decriminalized cannabis. And in, in Australia? In Australia, in Canberra, Australia. I didn't Australia. know that. Is it still yeah. that way? It is still that way. I think so it's what, five you can grow your own, basically? Yeah. Is that how yeah. people do? Yeah. But the effect that it had on my generation was basically... I, I'm in two minds. I, I, I fundamentally agree with you that I think things shouldn't be criminalized to the point where, you know, where uh, people are, are, are put in prison and these kind of things. The decriminalization of cannabis, however, dramatically affected my generation and my peers. And it was a vast, and I hear about this in the 70s as well. Penn Jillette is a fellow who lives in Las yeah. Vegas, talks about the experiences he had on the east side of Massachusetts when they um, partially decriminalized in the U.S., and the experiences he had and I had were very similar in terms of the best and the brightest of our generation basically being caught up in uh, what was still... You see, decriminalization never really works properly because there's still an element of social criminality associated with it. It's a bit like prohibition in this country. There is still a group in this country 
which are, you know, have there's a social stigma associated with alcohol. Oh, sure. With, with and I think people, the yeah. issues with regards to cannabis decriminalization... That'll partic- continue for a while. Exactly. There's inertia well, in that domain. Generations, <laughs> generations, in fact. But, I mean, when I look at my peer group, and particularly a number of close friends, uh, unfortunately, we we exist in a a society which is so heavily still driven with regards to things which are totally removed from the stuff that we discuss, that certainly the decriminalization of cannabis had quite a dramatic, and yeah. I, I'm sad to say, a negative effect. Oh, I can understand. Yeah, it's a, all drugs are dangerous, and so, uh, they need to be used uh, as tools for expanding consciousness, not <laughs> as party things. Well, it wasn't a party <laughs> thing. It was a depression thing. Where I come from also, up until very recently, had very high unemployment, particularly with regards to young people. There was a large disaffected youth population, and decriminalization of cannabis just kind of fueled yeah, the yeah. fire. In that but, situation, yeah, you can see that happening. Yeah. But I don't really care what happens to other people. <laughs> you know, I've given up on Homo sapiens. I think uh, they're a species that's time has passed, hmm. and uh, I think it's going to take thirty or fifty years for most of them to die off. I agree. And However, when when you are communally, as you are in a school, for example, when you are communally put together with people and you have various experiences. For example, they then moved into heroin decriminalization, which they never did, but they did sufficiently that the heroin users from uh, New South Wales came to, to Canberra. And so you would have experiences where there would be syringes everywhere, uh, these kind of things. You would see 13-year-old oh, yeah. kids going to hot playstations. So, I mean, my my experience with regards to this was, was very real. But I that's don't a know. Comment, that's not a comment on drugs. That's a comment on a society. Exactly. Oh, without yeah. question. Yeah. We need to reform society. We, yes. Well, we not society. We need a new human being. Yes. We need people who don't think the way the old monk language monkeys do. Yes. And nothing short of that is going to make one bit of difference, as far as I can see. Putting a so new go- government in there is irrelevant. We are need you to change the species. Are Rushkoff's work with Pardon? regards to language modification? If Doug Rushkoff did a series on PBS uh, uh, 2000, 2001, about the manipulation of language with regards to a wide variety of issues and how there were these think tanks that were actually generating new terms, which then very quickly were picked up and, and changed public consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's called, I, I want to say it's called the Sultans of Spin, but I think it's something, <laughs> it's something along those lines. Anyway, that, that I think what, what is happening, what unfortunately, Douglas Rushkoff. Uh, um, how do you spell it? Rush, as in Mount Rushmore, yeah. K-O-F-F. Huh. PBS, uh, I think it was... Assault. And his first name was what? Douglas. Okay. But Rushkoff.com, as in Rushmore, R-U-S-H-K-O-F-F.com. Uh-huh. Um, oh, okay. This is online presence. But uh, I agree with you entirely. My concern is that the, the stuff that you are describing is actually being used against us. So okay. we are... We are in a counter-battle situation. Can I, can I uh, put Certainly. this all into a larger perspective? Because this will... I, I agree with you. Everything you're saying is true, but it's, it's none of my concern. I understand that. Yeah, and, and mainly be, it's because I don't actually... See, actually, I think evolution is, is not the model I subscribe to for this planet. Uh, it's not a bad one. I don't have any objections to it, but I think it's limited. And I think it's uh, quite possible that Earth is developing, not evolving, that it actually does have an end point. Mm -hmm. And it seems clear to me, especially if you're familiar with the concept of punctuated equilibrium, that uh, we are living at a time of the emergence of a new species and actually the transformation of the planet. We're moving into a new epoch of planetary development. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is not something we are doing. I mean, we humans. Mm-hmm. But we are embedded in a larger system that has its own dynamics, and those Certainly. of us who can learn to accommodate ourselves to that and contribute mm-hmm. to it will survive, and those who don't will be gone. Mm-hmm. So no, I, have a, I have a chapter in a book called The Origin of Life, which argues basically that point. Oh, really? So, that sees Earth yeah. as, a, as, a, as an organism with its so, own developmental course? Yeah, from, from uh, sub, sub-microbes through to the UN through to yeah, uh, everything. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, right, yeah. okay. Yeah. That seems so, just, that's, to me, see, that's not a debatable issue. That's just where I start. You're, yeah, exactly. And then the repercussions of thinking that way lead me to think and act in certain ways. 
understand that. Yeah, okay. understand. So that's why I don't give a shit about uh, all their manipulation and the politics and the money and the, uh, the Illuminati and the builder bankers and all that <laughs> shit. I just that's all part of the caterpillar, and it's on its way out clearly. So in existing independently to society, in existing away from these things, you you live in Southern California, don't you? Yeah. So you're really surrounded by that whole in, <laughs> yeah. I'm right in the middle. I live in Orange County. <laughs> as you're talking, my wife is from Orange County, so yeah. I know the area well. Yeah. So as so rather than so you're intellectually removing yourself from the environment whilst actually being completely surrounded by it. Well, well, to me, again, there are these two worlds. There's the Matrix and there's Squish. I live in my, my body. I park my body at a certain place, my monkey, and mm-hmm. I go places and I live in Squish, my, you know, my three-dimensional reality. But my real life is here in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what counts. This are the ways what... that Squish can turn off the Matrix? I'm sorry, say that again? Are the ways in which, I mean, for, for me, for example... There are various financial constraints which, which could turn off the matrix. And well, I, I would be tragic. If, if I was out of the matrix, uh, I would cease to have a meaning to live almost. Mm. So you couldn't See, you're do... married and have a family. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a monk, mm-hmm. you know, and I live basically uh, to, to spread ideas. I love to spread ideas as well. I mean, I think what you're describing here is that one can exist perfectly well in in the matrix and still have squish around. Well, I, guess I still need squish. Is, I need to pay, you know, I need to feed my monkey. <laughs> certainly. Uh, but this yeah. is my point. This is my point yeah. here. Yeah. Because certainly, I mean, in the environment that I come from in terms of developing technology, in terms of that being by means of survival. Yeah. I mean, in the past 10 years, I've had seven jobs. I've had Five companies close on me. I've had one section close on me, and I've had one international move. Yeah. So I've I've gone through situations, and prior to that, when I lived in Australia, the early development of Noble Eight was very rustic. I would miss meals and stuff in order to get the matrix, in order to have the yeah. internet. And yeah. People would come give me food in order to use the <laughs> internet because I had a good internet connection. Yeah. So I know. Look, we are like minds here. Yeah. We we are we are both in the matrix. Well, the very is, much you're so. better at adapt at, at, at juggling the two worlds than I am. I I realized that I there was no way I could get married, and have a family and and do that and fulfill my obsession in linguistics. I, there was just mm. it was that was too much of an obligation, too much responsibility for me. Mm. So I just uh, said, well, I'm going to have to choose, and so I chose. <laughs> mm. I guess, yeah, I guess the two have never been competitive for me because I think basically what you describe is... And this, the, the interesting point with regards to the matrix identity is I think it exists independently of the ability to have access to the Internet. I could perfectly easily work away from the Internet and did for, for periods of time and then propagate my How ideas through, through brief contact points. So I would generate yeah, but something... But that's expensive, of, isn't it? No, no, not at all. Not at you all. You have to go somewhere. Okay, so when you have to I'm, get a hotel room and go to a I'll, conference, let me, or let me explain this circumstance <laughs> to you. So when I was in the Bay Area uh, through the dot com period, all was wonderful, and then basically everything kind of collapsed, and I ended up in a place called Leicester, which is just north of London, living in a YMCA because I had basically <laughs> I had various legal battles going on in the U.S. and was living in this environment, which was basically housing refugees who yeah. were about to be deported. Yeah. So the circumstances there, for example, the fleas were so bad that they ate through my big toe down to the bone. Jesus. The people next door... <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to quit complaining. His, well, no, I, I mean, I'm saying these are real circumstances. Anymore. No, but I'm, I'm saying these are real circumstances. And I think the yeah. idea of nationhood is something that you should probably understand in this context as well. Because if I was an American... The people I knew who who had similar experiences in the U.S. didn't have to leave the U.S. rapidly. I left the U.S. with a day worth of a visa, waiting for another visa. I ended up in the Leicester YMCA. Yeah. However, through these periods of time, and I've had similar periods of time, I refocused on my primary work associated with Noble Ape and cultivated in its own 
environment on the laptop. And then through my abilities to work, I was working. Uh, the irony was I was working as a as a engineer for Ericsson at the time. I found a job relatively quickly and then was able to take what I had developed in my isolated matrix back onto the matrix. In fact, that whole period of time was very revitalizing for me because Ericsson flew me all over the place and I existed independently but was able to continue. So I don't think the Internet is, well, for me anyway, personally, I don't think the Internet is really critical. Uh, I can develop away from the matrix and then push the stuff back on the matrix, yeah. which is really an open source yeah, paradigm. I think you're right. I could go, well, but my work now, see, that's what I did. I existed without the matrix for, well, you know, 35 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But the matrix is what allowed me to start connecting up with other people. I've already done my work. Mm. You know, my job now is to hook up with other people and find people who have complementary pieces of the puzzle that I have. So a large part of my job now is why I do these podcasts, is to meet this. I mean, I met you through because of this. So mm-hmm. that's, that's my job now is to hook up with other people and find ways to collaborate. Mm-hmm. So the Without 35... the web, how can I do that? Well, this is my question. The 35 years prior to the web, the Heron of Squish yeah. prior to reaching the Matrix... What was your life like over I was that a hermit. period? Like I said, I read, I studied, I wrote. I have 14,000 pages of handwritten journal pages. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I read, I studied, I went to seminars, I taught some stuff here and there, and, uh, and that was it. I mean, I worked. I, you know, I worked. At, I was a piano tuner for almost 20 years. That was oh, perfect. That, oh, <laughs> Well, we have we have another passion there as well, Heron. Very good. <laughs> what do you you tune pianos too? I, I, I've been known to in the past. I had a, a very old piano in Australia, which is a story for another time. But no, oh, very good, very good, Heron. Okay, yeah. so this is giving a greater kind of tapestry to who you are, which is basically another reason that I wanted to have this conversation. Yeah, as well. Oh, this is so you tune pianos. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was good for about twenty years. It, it I you know you made a, you make pretty good money. I mean. I mean, per hour, and that was the main yeah. thing, is, is I'd only tune three or four pianos a week, and that was enough. In Southern California? Were you in Southern California at the time? Yeah. Oh. So you had the pick of some amazing, probably some of the nicest pianos in the U.S. Oh, no, I was a shitty piano Oh, okay. I, I'm not that good. I'd be afraid. I wouldn't tune a piano for anyone who knew anything about <laughs> pianos. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Very I mean, good. You know, the people I took, I mean, if I went in and saw a nice grand piano, I knew I was in trouble. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could do it. And, and, mm-hmm. and you know, gener- very few times did people actually say, well, this doesn't sound quite right, you know. Mm. That made me real nervous when they started doing that. And this also explains your obsession with sound as well. Do you have perfect pitch? No, I don't. Ah. No, but I am, well, you know, uh, one of the other things I've done is I taught English as a second language for about 10 years, Mm -hmm. and I developed a whole new method for teaching speaking and hearing skills Mm -hmm. based on my uh, experience as a musician, basically. It uh, it became really clear to me that uh, the reason people can't speak like an American is because they don't hear like an American. They are actually listening with Korean ears. And until they learn how to hear, that the job in pronunciation is to actually teach people how to hear. And that is easy. (laughs) And 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 it can be automated easily on the web. It's the simplest thing in the world. What I actually did in the classroom was very inefficient because I could only work with like eight to ten people at the most at a time. But uh, I could actually be more effective. I mean, software could be more effective and deal with thousands of people at a time and actually provide a better feedback service than I was able to do in person. Are you a native Southern California? Yes. So you've seen a number of riots then? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was right in the middle of the first one. I worked at a photography studio at the time, and one of the guys got a bright idea to go down to Watts and take pictures. Mm. My my <laughs> wife's uh, grandmother was is a, also a native of uh, Southern California, and she remembers the riots from the forties, and uh, 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 yeah, up no, the I riots miss those. <laughs> and, yes, so no, Southern California has a fascinating history with regards to. Uh, just kind of an ethnic pressure cooker in some regard. Oh, yeah, everything in the world is here. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a great place. I love it. <laughs> you know, it's uh, I mean, you love it and you hate it. I mean, it's it, yeah. it's both. It was I too guess. much for my wife. When we moved back here in 2005, I got a job in uh, L.A. And my wife took one look at the area. She saw some kids on the corner with some baggy pants and said oh, we yeah, went yeah, up there. Yeah, out of here. So, yeah. <laughs> but I love that. I yeah. My first experience of the U.S. was coming to L.A. in... Uh, 1990, my father was an academic at UCLA, and I went, because he couldn't look after me, I went to summer school. And it was in, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the area now, Glen, not Glenda. How old were you at the time? I was 13, 14. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. And um, they were bussing in kids. I was one of two white kids in the whole school. <laughs> and it was an amazing experience and to me. Were, and you had come here from Australia? Australia. Yes. Okay. So, and everyone was just so friendly and so warm. In Australia, in particular, there were just, I mean, my background, it seems really ridiculous to even describe it as mixed um, here. But my father is from um, Eastern Europe, and my mother is kind of sixth generation, fourth, fifth generation Australian. So, from my perspective, you know, there were these two kind of cultural elements, yeah. and Australia was always slightly... Your you can, father was born in Europe? My father, well, my father was born in the UK. His father uh, was born in the UK, but he, basically they were part of a ghetto oh, okay. um, so, in yeah. Leeds, so <laughs> they, they had come and over. From originally, in what language did they speak? Uh, well, Yiddish primarily, but uh, they came... My grandfather on my father's side, my mother says this, um, was a, a Mongolian ancestry and came from even further east. Wow. But the crazy. So anyway, in Australia, you could tell you could tell Protestants and Catholics by looking at them. You could tell people who of Irish descent, and there was this visual thing, which obviously Australian listeners are probably going to react to very, very strongly. But there was always this kind of visual element to the outsider in Australia. Uh -huh. So when I moved to L.A., and it was only a very brief period of time in L.A. And how long were you in L.A.? Uh, probably, I want to say six weeks at most. Okay. Oh, good. That's long perfect for a 13-year-old. So anyway, I was there, <laughs> and I was welcomed in, and we lived, we lived just opposite Rhino Records, actually. So I would go to Rhino Records, and I'd buy uh, these, these LPs, these... Uh, and Rap, what year was this again? It's 1990. 1990, okay. So, I, right. You're just a young whippersnapper. Okay. Oh, I'm in my, I'm in my early 30s. <laughs> so, no, that really changed. And I think in terms of coming back to the U.S., because pretty well through, I mean, Apple offered me a job when I was 19, and I seriously considered moving to the U.S. to take that, but I was finishing my studies at the time. So I've always had a, a relationship with the U.S., um, in, in terms of being a place that I would probably... Why are you in Las Vegas, of all because, places? <laughs> when, my wife, when my wife decided that L.A. wasn't the place that we were going to live, she has two sisters living here. Ah, and okay. I, for the first year, I commuted both to uh, L.A. And, um, and San Francisco. I had consulting jobs. But, uh, yeah, we ended up in Las Vegas. I don't know. It's, it's a very... Um, it's kind of like a post-apocalyptic war zone with a party <laughs> going on in the center. Yeah, I mean, it really, yeah, that, yeah. I think the, that's a good one. I like that. That's, and I think right. in terms of my nihilism, which you're also touching on, it really is the place which I feel is a sense of, and when people ask me where I'm from, I say Las Vegas. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I just like, can't you tell? I mean, Las the accent. Vegas. Yeah, yeah so, I have a Las Vegas accent. There so, exactly. So, no, I, it's funny. I mean, I, I feel in some regard, as you do, as a hermit, and I have a library that I kind of cower in, and I do these kind of things. But it is it is a very... I, I, I agree with you, but I think the it's the idea that what we are also doing here is also conveying elements of humanity as well. And I think certainly listening to your previous history, you don't exist just as a hermit. You also actually really like the conversation. I mean, that... That is fundamentally oh, sweet. Absolutely, yes. This is this is the, as good as life gets, man. <laughs> you know. Yes. This is, um, yeah. You know, I, I'll tell you what, what interesting has been happening to me lately. Just because this is uh, some actually the first thing that's made a fairly large difference in the way I think about much of anything in years. Uh, I have a 28-year-old son that I haven't seen since he was one year old 
Yeah, I won't go into all the details, but it was. You, you mentioned this to the, your Australian caller, so I've, I've got the background. Oh, you heard it. Okay, well, that's yes. this is just all come, and, and he called me about a week ago or so. Mm-hmm. And, Does he live in Southern California? Oh, yeah, well? we're gonna. Okay. I'm sure we're gonna get together in the next few weeks. You know, mm. I just. So this idea of being a professional philosopher, how? Does he embody that through any? Does he do? Oh, apparently, our, he, yeah. Apparently, he and I are quite similar in that okay. way. Okay. I mean, in the I've hermit way or the philosopher way? Hour. I'm sorry. Wait, what? In the hermit way or the philosopher way or, or in all ways? Oh, I don't know. I don't know him. Real. I mean, I've only had one conversation with him for maybe forty minutes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I, his girlfriend told me that he's uh, very philosophically oriented, and he said one of the things he said during our conversation was that. I mean, I can't remember the exact words, but essentially he was saying that he has a part to play in the transformation of the earth. He's not quite sure what it is, but that uh, he's committed to that, to uh, participating in the transformation of the planet. So, hell, that sounded good to me. <laughs> so, in terms of the political, in terms of the environment, what what aspects in particular? Is this just a general calling towards the transformation oh, of the Oh, I planet? don't know. Like I say, he and I have a lot to talk about. You know, I, it, the first conversation was um, somewhat scattered and mm-hmm. all over the place. And, you know, it's going to take us a long time to get to know each other. So sure. it's going to my sense is it's going to be really fun. <laughs> to, to find so out you're seeing yourself with like to the other so now. Is this, is this the whole point? Your son represents the other fundamentally now. The other? Well, you exist as a hermit, which means that you see yourself as being self-contained. Oh no, I don't see but, that at all. No, I see that's not true. That's just where my monkey, as far as my monkey is concerned, I am. I am actually so dependent. That's why I say I'm dependent upon the web. The people like you that I talk to mm-hmm. are are what's important in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, there's Bushra from Morocco, and Kathy in Australia, and uh, Tom in the UK, and mm-hmm. and Dave, and all these people that that are vital to my existence now. Mm-hmm. But they haven't come from your body like your son has. No, but you know, I don't really much care about genetics. That's one of the things that uh, I'm still really clear about. Uh, the fact that he's related to me genetically doesn't interest me in the slightest. Although, I mean, I understand that part of it. I mean, I was adopted, and when I met my uh, uh, natural mother and my brother, all sorts of things about myself became quite clear, <laughs> you know, that, that I never had seen be, by being raised by adoptive parents. And uh, so I'm clear there's a biological thing, but that's just one of those, that's the biological thing, and that's part of what's going to make it so interesting for us to, to get together and, and learn who we are, you know. At what age were you adopted? Oh, from birth. It was uh, set up before I was born. So, okay. you know, yeah, a family doctor uh, arranged the thing with, uh, you know, well, it's a long story. I mean, I don't I've, sure. I've probably yep. talked about it. And not, you know, it's just I don't want. We probably don't need to go into it. But anyway, it was arranged, and and uh, yeah. So, and my parents broke it to me at some point, quite young. I don't. I mean, such that I don't even remember when they told me. It's like I sort of always knew, but it just didn't really make any difference to me. In terms of your exposure to Terence McKenna, mm. how did you get that? Did you meet him personally, or have you heard I've, his I've met him. Or? I met him once, and I exchanged some emails with him long, long ago. <laughs> and uh, and I've listened to much of his stuff and read most of his books, and mm-hmm. uh, and I think he's one of the most fascinating speakers I've ever heard in my life. I just love listening to him talk. Mm. Are you familiar with Lorenzo Haggerty's podcast, The Psychedelic Salon? No, I'm not. Why? No, I don't. The Psychedelic Salon sounds familiar. I don't know the, na- because the other he, name. Because he's been, well, he, you probably live on each other's doorsteps, but he's been republishing all of Terence's uh, work and a number of other people's work in podcasts. What's his name? Lorenzo? Lorenzo Haggerty, but The Psychedelic Salon or Matrix Masters, matrixmasters.com. Uh, will get you. I mean, you are like-minded souls. Yeah. Okay. Uh, good. Yeah. So that's that's yeah. Okay. So it's matrixmasters.com. Okay. But Lorenzo uh, Haggerty. There's a spelling of Haggerty with one G as opposed to two Gs. Okay. Um, but anyway, he's he's republished uh, almost all of Terence McKenna's work in audio form. 
the fascinating thing about McKenna was that he was a bibliophile. I mean, he read just a vast quantity oh, yeah. of text, and in terms of his ability to recall it, yeah. I think that's really the strength of his speaking. There sure, been... yeah, he comes up with this stuff. Certainly. Yeah. Well, it's stream of consciousness yeah, stuff. Completely. Yes, <laughs> yes. But um, it, Bruce Damer has also appeared on that, and he's a fellow who I've mentioned previously, but he met... Uh, met McKenna later in his life, and Bruce Damer was also adopted, but Bruce Damer was adopted, and he's talked about this in the Salon, which is interesting. It always strikes me in terms of the other distinction. Uh, he was adopted, I'm not sure, but enough time that he has early recall, recollections of um, being in an orphanage, mm. and this ultimately changed his uh, views, although uh, he's very... <clears throat> close to his adopted parents so it's an interesting mm, yeah, yeah it's an interesting psychological thing i think well that would be very different to have memories of a time before being adopted than my mm. experience because like i say i just uh, you know, i was i went home from the hospital with my adoptive parents mm. so you know there was um yeah if i had uh, that yeah that would be quite different to uh, To be aware of being adopted by somebody coming in and changing your life, <laughs> certainly. And the striking thing with Bruce is he has put both his adopted and his actual father have passed away. He put photo. He met his actual father relatively later in life, but he certainly had a relationship with him. He put the photos of his adopted father and his birth father together with photos of him, and you could see nature and nurture. Very striking. <laughs> really? Wow. He looks like his biological father but the creases in his face the life experiences ah, the, the attitude exactly his adopted father <laughs> and it's phenomenal because he looks yeah. like both men wow are these pictures online yes they're part of he's on he's on facebook and i think i'm not sure what the lorenzo is and, and this is haggard no this you're no, talking, no, this you're is bruce dame hold on so, i'm gonna write this down what's his name uh d-a-m-e-r damer.com we'll find we'll find him okay and Bruce is a fascinating fellow, and again, uh, a like-minded, a like-minded soul. Um, but he lives in Northern California. Well, see, I don't even care where people live anymore. That's the beauty of it. Here, you, you're in Las Vegas. I'm here in L.A. You might as well be in Canada. Okay. But I think, yeah. um, I think, well, the phenomenon with regards to the artificial life community, we haven't talked about artificial life at all. But the phenomenon that has caught on recently has been the ability for... When you talk about isolation, particularly um, intellectual isolation, this has been the history of the artificial life community as well in terms yeah. of people all over the world. Prior to the internet developing their vast yeah, simulation, yeah, and, yeah. and then the internet came and you know we all kind Changed of amassed together. But um, the nature of actually being able to meet like-minded folk in collective groups... One, the talk I'm giving at Stanford is at one of these um, kind of meetings, although it's yeah. open... Um, to the general public, has changed the community in some way as well. I think I, I, I live, as you describe, in terms of the nomad. I think, for me, I, when I meet people that I've been working with for a decade, it does have an emotional impact on me. You know, listen, I am looking forward to the day when I have the financial means to travel around to conferences and meet the people that have influenced me and share my ideas with them uh, in, mm -hmm. in, in squish. It's just that that's expensive. Oh, without question. You know, um, and uh, I'm not in a position to do that kind of stuff yet. But my intention is to be playing in that game over the next couple of years because... Um, if I want to put my work into the world, uh, I need access to the people who are also interested in the stuff I'm interested in. So that was the start of this call, fundamentally, was me describing this problem to you. So mapping out the next few years, how do you see yourself moving into Squish? Ah, good point. Well, I'll tell you, the, uh, the podcast, I, I think, is integral to this thing. Um, I know you, we talked about this before. You don't follow statistics but i do on my mm -hmm. downloads and last week uh, i was my highest ever i, I broke a thousand th went from from <laughs> 962 two uh -huh. weeks ago to 1342 yeah uh now i'm sure next week it'll be down to 200 yes, <laughs> so i mean that's not a problem the dragon i mean that's the thing but, you know but the trend is, the heroine the, the trend the is there there are people listening to the stuff that i'm putting it's, that's out there the important part. and uh and i'm getting contacts from them so yeah. I, I and plus i intend to be teaching gendo 
So, uh, and I, so I, I come to the internet to try out talking about things to see what people understand and what they don't and what actually moves them and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I figure I'm two or three years away from being able to basically open a school and teach Gendo. How many podcasts do you listen to? None. None. So you don't see yourself as part of a, for example, there's a podcast called the Sea Realm Podcast that your listeners may listen to, uh-huh. uh, which shares a number of the ideas that you describe, takes yeah. it in a different direction. What's the way, What's that? I'm going to write this one down. C slash, C dash realm, R-E-A-L-M. Yeah. Uh, and the fellow's name, he goes by the... Is that SeaRealm.com or something? Or, or, I'm or, not sure. I don't think it's .com. He has various blogspots. He's now living off the grid, but still releases oh, okay. a weekly podcast. Uh, and his um, name is? Well, he goes by the name KMO, just the initials okay. KMO. All right, so if I do a search for KMO and SeaRealm, I'll yes. find he's, it. He's quite popular, and I'm sure some of your listeners also listen to his stuff as well. He try has tried progressively to translate... And I'm not sure he probably has the same order of the shows that you have. I've appeared on his show one time, uh, and he has of the order. I'm not sure whether he has more than 200, but he's in the same kind of realm as, as you are. His shows are slightly more formal um, in terms of it being roughly an hour with a musical bit in, in oh, between. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's very, and it's quite slickly done. I mean, he, he has a sense of his audience. But yeah. he tried to translate this through to a tour. He toured up the East Coast and up the West Coast, uh, having small group meetings uh, with his listeners and also with a fellow that he brought over from the UK. Yeah. Now, I haven't spoken to him since then. I have a a fictional work that I'm trying to finish up and put out, which I want to pass on to him so I can get back on his show. The last time I was on, I was talking about exactly what we were talking about in terms of the Matrix and uh, this evolution of a thing that is greater than us all and this kind of stuff. So yeah. he had a show to talk about that. Um, but I haven't really gotten a sense of how his speaking tool went, aside from the fact that um, it was very hard work. I think the translation of what we do with podcasts... now. My understanding is the difference between having a thousand listeners and having ten thousand listeners or a hundred thousand listeners makes this thing a little bit easier. But I don't <laughs> yeah, that think would it, make a big difference. Yeah. yeah, well, I don't know. But well, I, again, I don't, I'm not going to be doing a tour. I'm going to be. I, I don't need Squish to do this. I think I can do this entirely on the internet. And if there's stuff to be done in Squish, special events, that's always fun, and that'd be great <laughs> to do. But <laughs> the core of what I'm doing is going to be uh, in the Matrix. So when you set this thing up. When you when you set up your podcast, you found TalkShoe and just did it through that. No, I didn't really set anything up. This just happened. I have seventeen hundred hours more recordings that I haven't even posted yet. Mm. Are you familiar with uh, Skypecast? Yes, you've, you've just, yeah, I'm okay. familiar with it, and you've described this. The, yeah, when, yeah that's Skype. how it got started. That changed. That's what changed my world. I was a hermit until Skypecast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and immediately, I mean, it was this, it was, it was a born, one of my born again experiences. Immediately, I mean, the first hour I spent on that, I realized this is how I can find people around the world who are interested in the same stuff I'm interested in. Certainly. And but you didn't exact- listen to others. Pardon? You didn't go out and listen to others as well. No, I had no need to because people were coming to me. And that was what I was there for. I was there to meet people and talk to people about the stuff I was interested in. And as soon as somebody came in and they were one of those people, then we just talked, just like you and I are talking right now. I understand. I understand. Yeah. And that was enough. I didn't. It wasn't a podcast. I mean, I recorded them, but uh, I, I had no intention. I mean, I didn't do anything. Like I say, I have 1,700 hours of stuff that hasn't even been edited. Yes. And someday I probably will because there's some great. I had some great conversations with a guy who was translating uh, a, a guy with his wife and two daughters who lived in an African village that was 40 miles from the nearest dirt road uh, to learn their language to translate it into a Bible. <laughs> You know, I mean, I talk to the most weird, the most interesting, fascinating people, and I've got all those things in there, but I, I don't even know where they are. So a- anyway, and then I, and when, ta- when Skypecast went down, I was desperate. I looked around. I found TalkShoe, and TalkShoe 
was good for a while, but talk shoe, I hate talk shoe now. Mm. Uh, it's just, uh, I hate that place. You're the first guy I talked to in talk shoe. Is it because of the political, you mentioned the political and no, the religious the people aspect. who go there. The yeah. people who go there are a bunch of morons. Yeah. You know, I mean, mostly. I mean, there are a couple. But anyway, then I discovered the Zeitgeist movement. And mm -hmm. I mean, I'd known about the Zeitgeist movement. I'm not particularly interested in it, really, but it's full of a bunch of nice people. And, um, and I found out that they had this uh, TeamSpeak 3 server and that people in the Zeitgeist movement hang out there. And so mm -hmm. that's all the podcasts that I've recorded in the last um, four months, probably, mm -hmm. have been recorded on the, team, on the Zeitgeist TeamSpeak 3 server. Because I have a room, a, a, a standard, you know, permanent room there called Earthling, and uh, yes. people come in there, and that's where all these con all the people you I've been talking to are people I've met there. And so, I only use TalkShoe for the RSS feed to iTunes. So when McKenna says find the others, your vision of finding the others is actually talking out to the ether and seeing who comes back and wants to talk well that's the beauty of the skype cast models i can put an, a room name up called gendo a way of language mm. and uh, most people well on talk show everybody already has seen that a million times and they already know that it's not christian and it's not american politics so they're not yeah. interested i've never had any problem with talk show the stuff that you described i've had one incident where a fellow came in said that what what we were doing with artificial life was wasting the t our time and we could be solving the world's problems and then we pointed out to him that we actually were quite fundamentally and aside from that i mean i, well, I no no but, but i say i'm just i expect more it's not the one no nobody comes in and t in, in, in is rude or interrupts they just they're not interested they all know what's what i'm doing and they don't even come anymore i guess the issue is actually working I don't know. My experiences with talk show, I was listening back to our chat and this whole notion of, I guess, I mean, there must be people out there that are against what we're doing in some regard, if we have a kind of collective thing that we're oh, doing. You can, oh, there's sure a lot of people who would think, yeah, this is really bad stuff. But I don't know. I, I just don't see the... I, I guess the whole notion of finding the others is that the others come very quickly. Well, that's what it is. The, well, yeah, but the people... I didn't find... Well, I said I found a couple. Uh, well, let me... I can go back to Skype better because there's more... The problem, another problem with talk shoes is there's no traffic here. Mm -hmm. uh, on Skype, um, in an hour, I could put maybe 100 or 200 people through the room. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't stick, but, but they'd come yeah. in and listen for 10 seconds and leave, you know? <laughs> And uh, so in a week, I'd probably put more than a 1,000 people through my casts. And out of that 1,000 people, I would meet one or two that were actually damned interesting. So, but in a, in a place like TalkShoe, where there's no traffic, where in, an, in a two-hour, I mean, because I still do the show, just, you know, out of courtesy. Do you do a monologue? What do you do? I, don't, I, do, I, I talk to, with people. If nobody talks, I don't do anything. I ah. read. I do my podcast usually at Starbucks. And ah. I always have a book. I'm always reading or writing or, you know, doing stuff on my computer. Have you ever done a monologue? No, I'm not really much. I mean, yeah, I do rants once in a while, but I'm not interested really. I'm there for conversation, not to lecture. I, one of the things I used to start off with and I'd say is, this ain't talk radio, and I'm not here to entertain you. <laughs> I'm here to be entertained by you, and what I'm entertained by is a good conversation with somebody who's interested in stuff that I'm interested in. And that was my intro. And then, basically, I just uh, went away until somebody asked for the mic. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I've had one show where I've had to give a monologue. Because the person who I was expecting to call in didn't call in. Ah. And I got very positive feedback. It was actually about the notion that um, it was called The Quality of Artificial Life, and it talked about some of the stuff that we've described in terms of preparing yourself to be constantly broke and living in the YMCA and these kind of things. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and it was a monologue which I thought, having completed it, no one will listen to this rambling it and was more it's human though that's pace. why yeah. and it, i've gotten positive feedback about that yeah. show yeah. but typically typically i don't have a problem because i think 
the need to talk is something which is fundamentally squish. I don't think these ideas exist in the Matrix. I mean, the, the computers that are transmitting this information have very limited concern associated with the information. But what we are doing here is, is, is a hybridization of Squish and the Matrix. I don't think it is just quintessentially well, the Well, the, the distinction between Squish and the Matrix is somewhat artificial. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's not quite that simple. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because the computer that I have here it exists in Squish. So, right away, <laughs> you know, there's some problems there. Well, Heron, you've given me a lot of food for thought. I did mention a chapter uh, which I'm uh, due to submit uh, this evening, so my plan was to spend a bit of time working on it as well, but I saw that you were on Skype and thought I should uh, probably chew your ear a little bit. Oh, Tom, I'm uh, so glad you did, really. Um, this, it's a delight talking with you. I think the, 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 the thing that I would leave with you is that you're not alone in any regard, both in terms of the conversation but also in terms of these broader ideas, and I think there is an increasing number of people who are also broadcasting oh, I, and writing yes. these ideas down. And there are a lot of people who aren't broadcasting or anything. There are a lot of people out That's one of the reasons I'm doing this, is I keep putting this out there, and I know, and that's why it's encouraging to see the number of downloads go up, because I there are people listening uh, who nobody knows. You know? well, what do you count about the people that burn your conversations to CDs and give them to people? Oh, I don't, great. There are all these kind of sort of ethereal ways. The obsession associated with the number, I think, is is something you should probably wean yourself oh, off. No, I don't care. No, it's just it's just good to know that it's going. Well, I, it doesn't. Listen, it was static at around a hundred for a year. <laughs> it didn't bother me. I didn't think I was failing. Yes. Uh, it's just I like to know what's going on. I want to know what the statistics are when I'm doing anything. It's just part of knowing what's going on. Is I don't use that to beat myself up or make myself feel good. But Have you ever held a party and had 100 people turn up? Yeah. So you're holding a party and you're having 900 people turn up. The That'd distinction... Yeah, I mean, my, my sense with regards to these things, and this is, you know... I, no, see, it's I, not a personal thing. No, that's not it. The issue is uh, it's, it's sort of verification of my assumption that uh, the trend on the planet is the direction I see it going in. There are people out there listening to this stuff. This, the stuff I'm talking about is weird shit. Most people don't care. But the fact that there are people out there who listen to this stuff and come back and listen to it again, tells me there's a change going on. Twenty years ago, uh, I, it was very difficult for me to explain this to almost anybody, or 30 mm. years ago. Now mm. it's relatively easy. So to me, it's just verification of my hypothesis that the trend is in the direction that, that the planet is waking up. See, I'm actually expecting a kind of outbreak of enlightenment on the planet over the next, say, 30 to 50 years. My parents had that anticipation, and that's the, always the thing that concerns me with regards to that anticipation, is that from that anticipation, from, I mean, I get the impression maybe they're, they're slightly older than you are, but they had that anticipation, and it was completely crushed through their lives in terms of the sense that the people that held the power that made the active changes did not experience the same in well, life. Yeah, yeah. well, I was in the 60s, and we, mm -hmm. if that, we felt that then, and uh, the naive part of that was to assume that it was gonna, we were going to see it happen mm -hmm. uh, at that time. I'm, I'm, I think, a little more realistic now, and, and, it, and of course, I could be completely wrong. I might be nuts, you know, mm -hmm. but, but it seems to me uh, that the, the time frame that makes sense to me is 30 to 50 years to see us essentially living on a new planet. It could get quite ugly. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising to see 80% of the human population gone in the next 30 years. Mm. I hope that doesn't happen, but if it does, then we'll have to deal with that too. But, uh, I mean, that's. I think we are at an epochal change of the planet. This is bigger than anything humans have ever faced before. This is not just a, a change from one civilization. Well, maybe that's it. That's 
but even that's too small. This is a, a planetary shift that's occurring. So I say. <laughs> in terms of digital communication, in terms of the freedom to communicate with people, in terms the world of over. everything, in terms of the planet, like I say I see this as something that Earth is doing. This is not something that humans are doing. Earth is doing this. Certainly, we are embedded systems. We we talk in terms of our egos and our own desires and goals. Uh, and that's a, not an unreasonable way to talk about it, but uh, it seems to me that seeing it in terms of a, a planetary development sheds light on things in really important ways. Do you think Earth's ends are the same as our desires? Well, I think um, our desires better get in alignment with what's actually going on. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, it's just like if you talk about, a, you know, an embryo of a tree frog, it, it's not going to develop into a petunia. It's going somewhere. It's going to be a tree frog. And any, any of the transformations that that system goes through, uh, you know, there are all sorts of uh, cell death in different parts of uh, embryological development. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's a very complex process and all sorts of things go on. But in the end, the only things that the only cells that continue are the ones that support the system that that's there. And I think that's a perfect analogy for what's happening to Earth right now. Yes. You've left me a lot of food for thought, Hera. Well, I'm going you, to you, you have done the same for me, Tom. So. <laughs> I'm going to conclude this chapter. I'm going to think more. We should reconvene at a later stage to, okay. to well, finish off this uh, conversation. You can listen to it on the podcast later tonight. <laughs> it'll probably be, it'll be probably tomorrow morning while, yeah. while I and, sit and I have And we have established that it's okay for, with you that I post this stuff. Most certainly. Yeah. That's, I, 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 you come I live here with in that expectation. Well. Okay. Very much so. Yeah, Very good. Me so. too. All right. You have a good evening. You enjoy your wine. Uh, we'll I've talk already, soon. You know, I've had a great evening. Uh, it's <laughs> probably going to go downhill from here. Uh, well, enjoy enjoy your sleep. I, I take great solace and solve many problems through yeah. sleep. So yeah. I hope you do the same. Okay, thanks. Good night. Take care.